to be with you this morning. I invite you to open your Bibles to the book of Job, chapter 38. I'm going to meet you there. We're going to walk through about 38 verses of this chapter, but I'm going to ask you to bear with me as I try to land the plane slowly. You know, we're given so much by God, friends. Um, We remember most often, we've sung about it today, the beginning of life. God's the creator. He's the author of life. We sing also so much about our great salvation, the, the future hope that we have. But the gift that God has given for us day in and day out is the gift of wisdom. And that's the skill of living a godly life according to God's counsel. Now, all Scripture is profitable, um, but, you know, in, in the Bible, there's these treasure houses of God's wisdom, these books that are especially designed to instruct us that way. And in the Old Testament, you've got the wisdom books of Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Either you call it the Song of Songs or the Song of Solomon, depending on what your Bible reads. If you think about those treasure houses, and we try to put Job in the place of how the wisdom of God lands. Think about it this way, perhaps. The book of Psalms illustrates beautifully for us the love between God and his people. A love that's deeply relational. It covers all the aspects of our emotion, all the, the passions and zeal that we have for God. That's the book of Psalms. It's the wisdom of a love with God. The Song of Solomon is wisdom literature that builds an analogy from that relationship between God and his people in marriage. It's the love between a husband and a wife. It should be an analogy of that perfect love. And you see the wisdom that's brought out in that book there. The book of Proverbs gives counsel so that you can grow in the skill as a follower of God to lead a meaningful, fruitful, righteous life in God's eyes here on earth. That at least is the premise of the book of Proverbs. If you read it, you follow it, on the whole, things are going to go well for you. It's counsel from God. That's the premise, but it's not a promise. Let me say that again. The premise of Proverbs is follow these rules, follow these instructions, listen to this guidance, and things will go well for you. But it's not a promise, and we see two huge, aching questions that are addressed in the two remaining books of wisdom. One aching question comes out, well, what, is, what good is wisdom anyway? What's the meaning of it all? Everybody dies. What good is this? That's the book of Ecclesiastes. It's a deep, deep question. What is the meaning of life? What good is wisdom after all? It pursues this question unlike any other book that's ever been written. It's a deep and existential question. It's a question where the author says, I have the spirit of life itself. I had a youth pastor ask me once, have you ever found suicide in the Bible? I'm like, oh yes, have you never read the book of Ecclesiastes? The author contemplates taking his own life. He's so discouraged with figuring life out. The other deep question comes from the book of Job, where you all have been studying. And I'm sorry I'm taking a long time to get there. Bear with me. The book of Job deals with the question, 
of what happens when a wise and righteous person suffers. And the question comes afterward, and the suffering is, God, where were you? Where were you? I trusted in you. You I've lived my whole life to please you. I've, I've listened to your counsel. I've listened to your wisdom. Where were you? That's the book of Job. Proverbs teaches us the understanding of knowing how in life. But Ecclesiastes and Job teach us the wisdom of faith where we fail to know why. I don't know why this happened. What do you do? How do you gain faith? How do you grow in wisdom when you don't understand why? That's what Job is here for in life. I think modern Christianity is spiritually impoverished, really because people don't go deep into these two wells of wisdom in Ecclesiastes and Job. You know, Christianity should be much more than being merely positive and encouraging. Sure, we can be positive and encouraging. We should also be holy and true in this faith. And that is a deep and weighty thing. So the book of Job, you know this, but by way of review, the book of Job, it opens with a depiction of this patriarch, Job. He's from the ancient world. He's as far before Jesus Christ as we are after him. Think about that. He's way on that side of it. But he is a man who walks in true wisdom. He hails from the land of Uz, which is the name of a guy. Genesis 10 verse 23 says that Uz was one of the ancient patriarchs and pieces of land were named after people. If you didn't know that, the ancient world, we still call pieces of land after people. Israel Egypt, just for examples, were people. We're told in Job 1 that he feared God and that he turned away from evil. In other words, he already was, humanly speaking, a wise and righteous man. We're told that he acted like a priest on behalf of his family. He prayed for them. He offered sacrifices to God on behalf of their sins. In Ezekiel 14, this is fascinating, God remembered just three people from history as being really remarkable godly people. Do you know who they were? Noah, Daniel, and Job. (laughs) Like if God's like, let's look, let's just choose three, for example. He names Job in Ezekiel 14. James 5, verse 11, James named Job as a person whose steadfastness his readers had heard of, just as real, just as historically genuine as Elijah the prophet, who he names seven verses later. We're told in Job 1 that God even commended Job in front of Satan. He was a good guy. You and I have enough to fill our lives full of lessons just from Job's positive life. You think about that? We could could just stop right there and just say, let's just look at what Job did. What was good about Job? We have a life lesson that we could learn from there. Practically speaking, the book of Proverbs unfolds in one man's life right here. But it's this man, this 
particular man that God sovereignly allowed to suffer unspeakable torment so that we could learn something deeper. On one hand, God brought worship from his servant in the face of his suffering. Remember that at the end of Job 1? He loses all of his possession. He loses all of his children. What does he do? He worships God in the midst of such shocking tragedy. But on the other hand, God shows Job's need of even deeper humility than Job already possessed. Job was not a perfect man. He was a good guy, but he was not perfect. And God was going to draw out something more in Job's life. God drew out of Job the aching scream, where were you? I mean, as the chapters go on and on and on, he draws this out. And in Job 38, we're going to finally hear God's greater question, where were you? I've named our message today, where were you? Because I think that that is the turning point that I want you to really lay hold of. Think about it. Job suffered loss of his possessions, loss of his children, loss of his health. His faith was despised by his own wife. Then he's got these three friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, Zophar, and they bring human wisdom, which essentially amounts to paganism. Can I describe paganism for all of you? It goes like this. If you please God, God will bless you. If you displease God, he will curse you. So, if you're cursed, you must have displeased God. That's the essence of all paganism. Think about it. Every idolatry, everything in every ancient world, everything, it all lies that way. We do these things so we please the gods. We get this from the gods. It's just still the essence of everything that goes on that amounts to paganism. You're going to be alarmed to hear me say, I find this in almost every church I've ever been. This graceless paganism can be found, and I'll bet you that if you're not very attentive, it slides by the radar in your own heart. It sure has mine. We think, boy, I've been a pretty good person today. Well, God must be pretty, pretty, pretty happy with me today. Or something tragic happens, and we ask ourselves, what have I done to deserve this? Do you see what's happening? Now, already we think that God operates on those terms. If I'm good, then this. If I'm bad, then that. And there's no grace in that. And this is where you get a, a works-based salvation, a false gospel from. If I do this thing, then God will save me. The message of the gospel of Jesus Christ is there is nothing that you and I can do. Only what Jesus has done. There's nothing we can do. Now, we, we run into the unusual character of Elihu after Job's angst has gotten shrill. I mean, Job's final speeches, man, he is just shrill and demanding that God respond. And then we have from chapters 32 to 37, this character Elihu, he's not happy with what anyone has said so far. He sets out to correct everybody. And now, finally, we get to Job 38. As a college student, I was impacted by this chapter of the Bible massively, and I mean impact like a rocket landing in my life and exploding. It was from Job 38 that I cemented my, my really wobbly theology on the foundation of God's utter 
sovereignty. When I read Job 38, it was like I had never read my Bible before. I remember reading it going, how did I never know this was in the Bible? Right here. How did I never know that God spoke this directly and this forcefully and this authoritatively? Now, I set much of it to music for choir. I was a music student, and I set Job 38 verses 1 through, I don't know how far I got into it, maybe about verse 18. I set this all for a choir and, and, uh, of my peers. I sang it on a recital. Until I read Job 38, I really believed I had God all figured out. You know, I kind of had this box in my life. <laughs> Here's this box. It had a nice piece of tape on, and on it was written, God. And in that box, there it was. That was, that was God. That was, I could carry God around. I could, I could leave God over here. I could, I could bring God with me. I could put God in a briefcase. This was God. And now when I look back after Job 38, I look back at that time in my life. I try to find that box, and it's, it's honestly like a charred mass of ashes after a lightning strike. That's what Job 38 did to me. I was like, I have no idea how great and magnificent and huge God is. How can I dare to pretend that I can fit him in this little box? Now, that's been a long introduction, if ever there was one. (laughs) Join me in Job chapter 38, and let's walk through. After everyone else has spoken, now we hear from God. Job 38. Let me read verses 1 through 3. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind, and he said, Who is this that darkens my counsel with words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man, and I will question you. You make it known to me. So God speaks, and who does he address? He addresses Job. Elihu has just delivered his speeches, but God is not speaking to Elihu. Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. God will tell us, I'm not happy with you guys, chapter 42. But God is not speaking to them. God answered Job. So what was Job's problem? God is going to show us something in Job that we all need to own and get a hold of. He's targeting Job in this speech. Job tries to give a fumbling answer in chapter 40. In Job's final confession, he quotes these words of God, and he says, Now I repent. Job repents at the end of the book. What does he repent of? Here's the thing. God reasons rhetorically through this passage by essentially interviewing Job for the position of master of the universe. It's like, oh, you you want to be the judge of the universe? Okay, let me see your job qualifications. In a sense, he's like, you want to be the judge? Let's see if you can lift up the gavel to bring court into session. You know, we talk about, you know, at a trial, for example, we need to be tried by a jury of our peers, right? Well, Job wants to put God on trial. Well, who are God's peers? God's saying, fine, are you my peer? Should I answer to you? He asks questions that show us Job has no business putting God on trial. So what we're going to see now from verses 4 through 18, God first draws Job's attention down 
in our attention down to the earth, down to his creation on earth, the sea, the rhythms of nature. He even points out all the wicked people all over the earth that he has to manage and deal with. He shows even places Job has no way of getting a hold of, the gateway to death. And so after that, he's going to lift up Job's eyes to look at the heavens, to consider the stars and the constellations, even the expanse of the universe. All through this, he's going to be talking to Job about time. And he's going to have three questions. The first one we've said is, where were you? So let's, let's hear that, verses 4 through 7. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me, if you have understanding, who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Who laid its cornerstone, when the morning stars sang together and the sons of God shouted for joy. God is reflecting here on creation, and he's so satirical. Do you notice that? Did you know God talks this way? Oh, surely you know, right? (laughs) This is is the way parents sometimes have to end up talking with their teenagers, right? It's just like, it turns into a satire game. God's like, oh, surely you know. You were there, right? Obviously, Job does not know. Obviously, Job was not there. And I find it shocking that in Job's suffering, God would speak to him this way. It is not a passage that I would inspire, proof that I never inspired the Bible, nor would you. You and I would never talk to a suffering man this way. But God's like, let me explain something to you. In your suffering, you think that you are justified, and I want to show you something that you need to peel that away. That is something that needs to be cleansed out of your life. We're told by God something here no man should ever know, that at creation the morning stars sang together and the sons of God shouted for joy. Who knew that? No human being was even made. And God's like, yeah, this happened. Job could never know that. There's no way any human ever could. God draws the veil back and shows his greatness We see God's comprehensive knowledge of all things past. We see God's omnipotent power over all things made. And we see also something very important. That's God's authorial right. So I told you I was a music student. When I was a music student, I would write out all my notes by hand on on paper. Lots and lots of notes by hand. And then eventually you'd put them into the computer, print it out. People would play music. I wrote lots of things for choir, for symphony orchestra, for string quartet, lots of different music, concert band, everything. Listen, there were mornings I would wake up and I would compose and I'd be writing and writing and writing and writing and writing. I'd write it all out. And then by the evening, I'd be like, nah, that's garbage. <laughs> and I'd whip out my eraser and I'd be like, <laughs> now how dare you think that you can come and erase a single note that I wrote? Let me tell you what. You would have some serious trouble on your hands if you laid an eraser to any note or added anything to anything that I wrote. Doesn't that make sense? You write a book, you send it to your publisher, and your publisher's like, nah, half of that's garbage. Here, let me write half your book for you. You'd be like, not a thing. (laughs) That is not going to happen. We call that authorial right. You have the right over what you have made, and even so much more does God. God has a right over everything he has made. He is the author. We are the things made. And God's saying, are you the author of these things, Job? 
Do you have this right? Look at verses 8 through 11. He's looking down at the earth. Now he's looking down at the sea. Or who shut in the sea with doors when it burst out from the womb, when I made the clouds its garments and thick darkness its swaddling band? And I prescribed limits for it, and I set bars and doors. And I said, this far you shall come and no farther. Here shall your proud waves be stayed. God made the ocean. There's nothing quite so breathtaking as your first encounter with the sea. Uh, we were just talking before the service about just the, the joy of going to the beach and seeing the sea. I don't know when the next time is we'll get there. <laughs> but it's wonderful. I remember my, my middle boy, Sammy, I was, he was so young. I remember when he first saw the sea, we walked up over the sand dune, and you could just see his whole face was just like, <gasps> you know, it was just, it just took his, it just broke his mind. You know, there could be all this water. It was just overwhelming. You see the sea, it's so powerful. And God's like, yeah, I just basically kind of like set the edge of that thing like that. There it is, right? It leaves an imprint on your soul, but God's like, I put its proud waves to halt. He describes things here that Job could have no knowledge of, but he describes these proud waves. And in a sense, God's telling Job, notice how I put an end to pride. Because at the end of the day, even the most righteous man on earth, who I think Job is a wonderful candidate for, humanly speaking, sinned in that he had pride that needed to be dealt with. There's still pride at the bottom of our sinful heart proud waves. We can discern that the pride of the sea can't be compared with the pride in the human heart, but God knows how to put a stop to it all, even in Job's heart. Verse 12 through 15, God talks now uh, about about time and about light. Listen to what he says. Have you commanded the morning since your days began? Have you caused the dawn to know its place that it might take... Hold the skirts of the earth, the wicked be shaken out of it. It's chains like clay under the seal, and its features stand out like a garment. From the wicked, their light is withheld. Their uplifted arm is broken. You can see that God rules over light on earth. He's the dawn bringer. And by his light, he shakes the wicked out, and he cuts off that proud, uplifted arm. Job can't do anything to answer this. You notice this is nothing that Job can possibly say about this. Absolutely nothing. But he was sure God must be in the wrong, right? You see see what's going on here? Job, Job thinks that he has a God's eye view of everything because he has led a righteous life. And friends, no matter how good a life you and I endeavor to lead, you and I do not have any more of a God's eye view than what he gives us in his word. That's it. That's our God's eye view. That's all we have. Verses 16 through 18. Look at what he says. Let's go down deep, deep into the sea. Have you entered into the springs of the sea? Have you walked in the recesses of the deep? Have the gates of death been revealed to you? Have you seen the gates of deep darkness? Have you comprehended the expanse of the earth? Declare if you know all this. Again, look at It's just exhausting. God's just like, have you been anywhere? Do you know anything? (laughs) I mean, think about the depths of the ocean. Like, this is 
This is 4,000 years before anybody would ever go down into the ocean. I mean, the deepest you could dive is like to maybe, if you could hold your breath deep and dive for pearls, <laughs> like, you know, maybe 20 feet, maybe 30 feet down. I mean, that's it for 4,000 years. Now, knowledge shall sure increase, Jesus said. We've been able to go down deep. But do you know that still the depths of the ocean are places where we are still discovering new creatures? I'm like, you go to any, any you know, science channel, any nature channel, like, we found a new creature in the sea, new thing in the sea, amazing. It's like, it's still, we're still going, what? It's a wonderful and amazing place. But then God says something even more profound that none of us can get to. And that's this. God knows more profoundly where the gates to death are to be found. There's a grand mystery when it comes to life and death. I have stood by the bedside of dying people many times as a pastor. And it it is a profound spiritual mystery when you're there and you're going, I remember once I had to set up a room where uh, an elderly gentleman had passed away. And I was there late at night, me and Dean, late at night. I was setting up all the music for his funeral. <laughs> I'm just, here's Dean's body. And it, you're just keenly aware that Dean is not here. There's this, there's this place of life and death. His body was there. Dean's not here. It's a heavy, it's a weighty, it's an overwhelming thing. gates of death. God knows everywhere on earth all at once what is more. He knows the expanse of the earth. He knows what belies, lies beyond the reach of ships. Think about Job's date. There's nobody going around the earth in ships, right? How many thousands and thousands and thousands? How many years till anyone's going to circumnavigate the globe? No idea, but God knows all these things. God continues, verses 19 through 21. Where is the way to the dwelling of light? Where is the place of darkness that you may take it to its territory, that you can discern the paths of its home? You know, Job, you know you were born then. The number of your days is great. You hear that sarcasm? God speaks this way to show Job you have no idea what you're talking about. God knows the very origin of light and dark. It's interesting that, that this all relates to time and to age. So things that like, we still debate about. like Cosmology, we're like, eh, I don't know. <laughs> we talk to people about light, theories of light. They're like, ah, I don't know. How big is the universe? Well, I don't know. It's expanding. Like, we don't know. Right? God's like, oh, surely you know. Let me just tackle a longer passage, verses 22 to 30. Have you entered the storehouses of the snow? Have you seen the storehouses of hail, which I have reserved for the time of trouble, for the day of battle and war? What's the way to the place where light is distributed, where the east wind is scattered on the earth? Who has cleft a channel for the torrents of rain and a way for the thunderbolt to bring rain on a land where no man is, on the desert in which there is no man? to satisfy the waste and desolate land, to make the ground sprout with grass. Has the rain a father? Who has begotten the drops of dew? From whose womb did the ice come forth? Who has given birth to the frost of heaven? The waters become hard like stone. The face of the deep is frozen. I just want to note here, first of all, that ice, snow, and hail are relatively rare in the Middle East. 
<laughs> and, I mean, God is describing stuff that Job maybe a couple times in his life saw and experienced, but they would have been super memorable. Like, what? He questions about his Job. Knowledge of the weather. You know, it's just kind of like the weather channel. It's like, he's just like, yeah, do, you, do you know this stuff? Do you know where it all comes from? Can you make these operate on earth as they should? That's the more profound question. Do you know how to preserve this for the time when they should fall at just the right time? Do you understand this? What about places where there are no men, Job? You ever hear that old trick philosophical question? If a tree falls in the woods and nobody is there to hear it, does it make a sound? You ever hear this? It's like the old, like... Well, the answer is God is there. God is the one who is there where no people are. And God knows the answer to that question. And through his grace, God allows us to know him. We know God. But God is the one who knows. Job, can you, can you control all this stuff? You got this? Now, God moves from where were you to the do you know and can you question series. Verses 31 to 33. Can you Bind the chains of the Pleiades or loose the cords of Orion. Can you lead forth the Mazaroth in their season? Or can you guide the bear with its children? Do you know the ordinances of the heaven? Can you establish the rule on earth? God lifts Job's eyes from earth up through the weather now to the sky. A sky unpolluted, I should add, by city lights. A sky where all of these things with a wonder of her. Have you ever been where there's absolutely no light pollution? One time in my life, I went on a trip with my father up into Canada. We flew in way up north, landed on this lake, landed on an island in this lake on a pontoon plane. The guy lets us out. He's like, good luck. I'll be back in a week. (laughs) We fished for pike and walleye, and it was amazing. But at night, I saw the stars like never before, saw the aurora borealis, the northern lights. I heard wolves howling in packs on the other side of the lake. It was unbelievable. But this was what Job saw every night as he looked up at the night sky. And God's describing the different constellations here. The Pleiades, the Orion, the Maseroth, the bear with its children. All of these constellations that would move in their order and in their seasons across the sky. And God's like, Job, you got this? You can move that stuff around? Because I'll go on trial if you got this. I'll answer all your questions if, if you got this. Job's like, I... <laughs> Do you know the ordinances of heaven? Can you move the starry sky? Verses 34 to 38 will close our passage here. Can you lift up your voice to the clouds that a flood of waters may cover you? Can you send forth lightnings that they may go and say to you, here we are. Who has put wisdom in the inward parts or given understanding to the mind? Who can number the clouds by wisdom? Who can tilt the water skins of the heavens when the dust runs into a mass and the clods stick fast together? God, in fact, says, if you want to critique my job, you need first to be able to grasp it. God's intimately involved in our world, friends. 
We, we're not deists. God started it off a long time ago. He wound it up, and it just rolled. That's what the deist teaches. And God's like, no, I'm intimately involved in every moment, all the time, everywhere. This is not the expression of a disinterested deity. God knows. And the implication of this passage is that God knows Job. God knows you. God knows me. God knows our suffering. God gets it. He, it's not hidden from him. And we know that God is powerful enough to do anything. And so this brings up Job's question. Yeah, well, then why don't you do something? And here, friends, is the great inversion. This is what wrecked my whole God-in-a-box thing. God does not tune his instrument to us. We must tune to him or die out of tune. That's how it goes. God does not tune his care to us. God does not exist to meet my every need like a cosmic gumball machine. I stick in a quarter, I'm expecting the gumball to come out. If I don't, I'm going to go talk to the manager. It doesn't work that way. We exist for God's glory. What is the chief end of man? To glorify God, to enjoy him forever. You would never reverse that and say, what is the chief end of God? To glorify man and enjoy him forever. And yet that right there is usually where you and I stumble, right at the lintel. Because we believe that that's what God exists for selfishly, secretly, and that's what God is, needs to beat out of Job. Job, and for everyone who would read this book of literature, everyone who would hear God ask the questions, God allowed this in his sovereign wisdom. God knows how to bring good out of evil in Job's life and in yours life, in your life. I, I have many illustrations I could use. I could, I could talk about, I, I was thinking about, you know, should I tell stories of people who are suffering? Friends, I think that if you are not suffering right now enough in your life, give yourself a little bit of time. And, and you will need to hear this from God. There's two overarching doctrines in our relationship with God. One is the doctrine of imminence, that God is knowable, perceivable, graspable, relational, that he meets us here where we're at, lost in sin, that he sends Jesus Christ as Emmanuel. Think of imminence and Emmanuel. Put those two things together. God with us. That's the doctrine of imminence, that God comes near. The other doctrine, which has to hold hands with that, although it is expressing just the opposite thing, is transcendence. And transcendence teaches that God in his perfections is really beyond our capacity to fully experience, comprehensively grasp God's too big to fit inside our minds. St. Augustine had this saying he used to say, if you can understand it, it's not God. <laughs> it's, pretty, it's profound. Here's the thing. If we tarry too long over God's imminence, his nearness, his closeness, we have a risk and the risk is this. We turn his attributes into a self-centered caricature. I used to take my students in New York City, and you'd have these people that draw these little cartoon caricatures and try to sell it to you, you know? And it's hilarious. You know, draw these little caricatures. We make...
emphasize transcendence, on the other hand, to the exclusion of imminence, then we're just going to have no, no easy way of personally relating to him in prayer, in worship, in hope of salvation, in humble trust. So here's my counsel from Job 38. I think this is one big theological lesson. You have to settle the issue of God's transcendence first in order then to rightly appreciate his imminence. You've got to get the greatness of God first and have that there. And then in the light of that, the wonder that God would come near becomes so much more precious. If all that we do is have this near and close, cozy, soft, comfy God, when you hear Job 38 and you hear God talk, you're like, what is that? You've got to get the greatness of God first. And then the wonder that God would care enough about you and me to love us? John 3.16 has this amazing truth buried right at the inception. For God so loved the world, right? And we always think about, oh, how he loves the world and, oh, Jesus Christ. Yeah, but, but it starts with for God. <laughs> and if you don't understand the God who so loves the world or loves the world this way, you don't rightly understand the wonder that he would send Christ. That has to come first, the greatness of God. Listen, I have five meditations I'm going to close with. So this is the end of the message. You can call these applications, but here's the thing. If I try to apply it to your life, I don't really know your life well enough probably to really make this land. So I'm going to just think of them as points for you to ponder. Number one, God's words are more important than our words. God's questions are more important than our questions. We're all going to have questions in life. And God invites us in Scripture to cast our cares on him, but we're commanded to open our ears above all. Number two, God is the most properly entitled being in the universe. You might not like that word entitled because we use it so negatively in our culture. Oh, these people are so entitled. God is rightly entitled. Here's what I mean by that. God deserves our life response for all that he is and all that he does. We do not deserve a response from God. Did you get that? This is the lesson of Job. You don't deserve it, Job. God in his grace will give grace, right? But you don't, not because you deserve it. That's paganism. Because, therefore, God respond, right? I put the quarter in, therefore I get the gumball. That's how you and I think so often, and that's just paganism. Three, and this might sound strange hearing from Job 38, but look at all the things that God knows. God is mindful when a sparrow falls, Jesus said. As you will read on further in Job, you're going to find out God's intimately aware of all of his creatures, all of his creation, God knows when a sparrow falls. He knows everything that you need. He knows every situation you're in. He cares more about you than about the little birds. We used to sing his eyes on the sparrow. And I know he watches me. I mean, it's, it's a deep and profound thought. Nothing breaks into our life that hasn't first been allowed through the gate by our Redeemer. Let me say that again. Nothing breaks into your life not cancer, not the loss of your loved ones, not the despair and suffering that you're going through internally that you can barely even describe. Nothing 
that has not been allowed there by your Redeemer. Number four, God sees beyond our horizons. My son's working on some math. Some of you guys are engineers. Been through the engineering thing. You've, you've had to do advanced math. You know that you start, you start to graph certain things and you go, Ooh, wow, that, that, that there curve is going to go way off the charts. <laughs> like, I'm not going to have room on this paper to graph this thing. Or this wave, it's, that's huge. You ever try to write out, you know, one of those, one of those uh, what do they call them? Those abstract numbers, you know, pi, phi, whatever it is. I mean, it, irrational numbers, they call them. You can't, you can't do it. You keep writing and writing and writing and writing. God is not limited by our horizons. You and I walk out here, we got our horizons beautifully mapped with all these mountains and hills. We can't see too far. God's not limited that way. God sees where that graph ends. He knows. And that means that justice, fairness, right, wrong, they're all mapped on God's divine graph. So what's the takeaway from this? I have two takeaways. Peter, the Apostle Peter, writes... Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. We have the mighty hand of God here, and the lesson is humble yourselves, therefore, so that at the proper time, what? He may exalt you. What do you do meanwhile? Cast all your anxieties on him. Why? He cares for you. Job's 38 message is not that God doesn't care. Don't get that message out of this. God cares and God knows, but God has reasons for allowing this to happen that are off the map. Job can't see it. Sometimes to our grief-filled question, God, where were you? God just answers, I am that I am. I will be who I will be. I am God and you are not. We don't always need a reason for trials. What we need is a reason to humbly trust him who holds the universe together. Another huge takeaway I have is that all of these big lessons and all of the lesson of Job is shown to us in Jesus Christ. Who else lived a righteous life? Jesus Christ. More than a righteous life, a sinless life. Who did not have to be rebuked by God for his pride? Our Savior, Jesus Christ, who humbled himself and took on flesh submitted himself even to death on a cross for you and me. And at the right time, what does it say? God lifted him up. We're going to sing a hymn together. Let me pray before we do that. I just want to ask God to apply this to your heart. Wherever you need Job's 38 message, this big, heavy message to land on your soul, let me ask God to do that for us according to his wisdom. Lord,